0: I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nate Sager. Welcome to Sports Lit. I stared blankly at the TV in my living room. My dad said nothing to me. He knew that it was better not to jar me out of my stunned silence. The ride was over. The joy was gone. Even though it wasn't realistic, I felt just as numb as the Maple Leafs who had just skated off the ice on my television set. The spring of 1993 was like something I'd never experienced before. I was just finishing my first year of high school, and more importantly, the Leafs were good. Sound strange? It did to me. I grew up watching them on Saturday nights in the 80s, and boy were they bad. Their playoff run to the Campbell Conference Final was high drama. Two Game 7s, Borshevsky, Doug Gilmore's wraparound, and now, tonight, there was another one. Another Game 7, beat the Kings and face the Montreal Canadiens in the Stanley Cup Final. Truth be told, as I sat there for about the last 10 minutes of the third period, I was deflated. Mike Donnelly had just broken a tie. And somewhere, at that exact moment that the red light went on behind Felix Potvin, I knew the dream was over, despite the tension and excitement that was about to come to close out the game. 92-93 was far more than the passion returning for the Maple Leafs. As Todd Deneau wrote about in 2012's The Season in Time, It was the last year two Canadian stars, Wayne Gretzky and Mario Lemieux, were gonna be shining the brightest at the same time. The Stanley Cup was about to turn 100 and a new commissioner was hired and the game was about to change. His name was Gary Bettman. I knew as I sat on on my chair that night, my attachment to the game could never go beyond that point and may never reach that level again. About 20, 20 kilometers down the road, a guy I didn't know who would later turn out to be a co-host on this program was also watching as the King celebrated. From what I remember, as he told me later, he turned off the set, walked across the road in the old Town township and screamed into the night. While we watched from 250 kilometers away, Damian Cox was at Maple Leaf Gardens that night in the press box, covering the series for the Toronto Star, where he still writes and has been for three decades. He is also with Rogers Sportsnet, where he contributes across all platforms, including co-hosting Primetime Sports with Bob McCowan. In his latest book, The Last Good Year, he uncovers the drama of the 1993 Campbell Conference Final. Nate?
1: Yeah, as Damien distinguishes early on, there are just times in sports where, you know, that, Force in the universe just you know converges on one event. I always think of uh, Chuck Klosterman's great essay thirty three when he says the Lakers Celtics rivalry in the eighties in basketball explains everything in the world. I don't know if I'd go for that far with this, but as Damien distinguishes early on in the book, it's the last good year, seven games that ended an era. As I think I think I saw a great post on Arctic Ice Hockey from a few years ago. It really that year was when the nineteen eighties hockey ended in in many ways. Uh, and as Damien, dis- you know, distinguishes early in the book, the, you know, the NHL at that time was a better story for a journalist and a, a reader than I think the uh, present day league league is. Uh, and as he, you know, elucidates, 25 years is an appropriate passage of time for a, you know, a deep dive into what was just this riveting, couldn't take your eyes off it hockey series between two teams that each... We're looking for, I guess, what could inelegantly be called sort of "fu cred," the kind you can only get when you have a champion sh- championship. Championship. Uh, the Leafs hadn't had anything to cheer about since the original six era. They were sort of coming out of the, you know, the darkest days of the Harold Ballard era. Uh, the Kings had never won anything. You know, five years about five years on from the. Wayne Gretzky trade. Really, if they wanted to go for an esoteric title that wouldn't offend uh, anyone on Twitter or Reddit, they could have called this book Desperate Hockey because they had these teams that hadn't won. Uh, Wayne Gretzky was, you know, playing hurt and, you know, just you know just past his peak. And then you had sort of owners who were trying to stay one step ahead of, uh, you know, various authorities. Most infamously, Bruce McNall, less so the least, Steve Stavro, two owners who were kind of in over their heads. And that desperation, I think, also was felt among the fans, if, if I might egghead it up. I think that 1993 Kings Leaf series, California team. I mean, the Kings had been around since 1967, but it was always kind of like, oh, yeah, there's a team in California because, hey, Canadians need to go somewhere in the sun for a few days every winter. That's what that's what the Kings represented. I remember uh, stories about Montreal Canadiens players in the in the Scotty Bowman dynasty era. Yeah, they just go to the beach and Steve showed up and be like, yeah, we can beat the Kings with an arm tied behind our back because Guy LaFleur was like, hey, you can't go in the sun. You'll get tired. <laughs> Anyways, uh, that was probably one of the first truly direct, not abstract in any way to, to tr- that Canadians really felt threatened about the Americanization of the NHL, like the development of a league that would come to see its Canadian franchises heritage markets and horrible Gary Bettman impression. You know, it's uncomfortable to feel like your favorite thing is getting taken over. Now, we had always been able to compromise on that nationalism. We understood that, you know, two-thirds of NHL teams were based in the U.S. thanks to greater population, maybe different values about how much emphasis a society should place on sport and spectacle. Uh, definitely interested to hear Damien talk about what it meant for Los Angeles with, you know, Canada, Canada's golden boy, you know, Wayne Gretzky coming in to beat the Leafs, what that, what that did. I mean, it was, you know, you could feel, I think you, at the time, maybe it's easy to project back, but you could sort of feel the plate shifting, I think, since that 93, counting with that 93 final that the Kings went on to, I think teams from California have played in the Stanley Cup final more often than teams in Canada, Canada in the quarter century since. Um, And so it was definitely, this was a, I really like this book. It got into the real meaning of nostalgia. I came across like an essay from Michael Chabon recently. And he says the real meaning of nostalgia most truly and most meaningfully is the emotional experience, always momentary, always fragile of having what you lost or never had of seeing what you miss seeing you know you know neil as you outlined that wasn't a really emotional experience for you and i and just a whole generation of lee fans probably at a time in your life when your personality is really taking form like you and i've probably used that series as a metaphor for where we are in our lives at times it's a touchstone it's it's right it's like the buffalo bills losing four super bowls it's like Bill Buckner was for Boston Red Sox fans still is even after a four world series. Uh, And until the Leafs win a Stanley cup, it will remain. So, so we're gracious uh, that Damian Cox is here to sort of talk about how he reconstructed what he saw and, and tied it to the present day and and where some of the central figures in that series are now and in their lives as uh, older men. Absolutely.
0: It was a roller coaster, an emotional roller coaster for the players, obviously physical toll, for fans, it was for fans. It was draining too, and it was it was it was definitely interesting to go back and read this and and some of the finer points and details that you forget oftentimes because you know history sometimes blinds you. You Remember things a, a certain way and or a certain way, and and Damien um, goes back and and uncovers what what happened, blow for blow, and and a lot of the emotion spills out as you said from the the players that are that are that are now in their 50s remembering that and some that don't even want to talk about it because it still hurts so yes the star of the passion returns Damien Cox after the break welcome Damien. well thanks um we're very happy to have you here and I want to get into this right off the bat. You use a word, or I'm going to use a word that probably wasn't used as much in 1992-93 that it is now, and you hear it a, a lot around Toronto, and that's uh, gentrification. Are you writing about the gentrification of the league in some sense? Because you you use the reference of the coffee shop to the Starbucks, and we're in the Starbucks era of maybe of the NHL, and that was the corner coffee shop. Is that is that a fair assessment? Boy,
2: you guys start start hard, don't you? <laughs> um, you know, I, I guess I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, I thought, I've thought i thought of it more of what we've seen gradually over the past 25 years is the homogenation of hockey and of the National Hockey League. Now, whether that's the same as gentrification, uh, I guess it depends how you look at it. But, um, I mean, part of what I wanted to write about was not just this series but to try to explain and detail how the industry and the game were different then, and I really wanted to stay. I wanted to stray away from the grouchy old man. Used to be good, now it's no good anymore, because I don't think that's true. Um, but it's it's different, and it's it's really different. And I think whether you like it more or less depends probably on when you saw your first hockey game, and uh, and and what you like about the sport most.
1: And now as a framing device, each chapter sort of focuses on one game and a central character. How did you work through that process of decide, of zeroing in on who is who you were going to build each chapter around?
2: Well, it wasn't the original plan. But of course, you guys know, the original plan is never the plan that that uh, it ends up being it I mean when I I mean I've been kicking this around for a long time in my brain and sort of waiting till it seemed the right time. Um, and my original plan was to be really comprehensive and try to talk to every single guy on both teams and everybody who's involved and tell the story of everybody. Um, and as I worked through it I, I first of all that was going to be unwieldy and second of all, it wasn't going to, tell a story in the same way I think that you have to try to tell a story um so one day I was sitting with Nick Garrison from Penguin and we were throwing around and I said you know we're do we just, it just came up the idea of you know seven games seven acts you know seven seven acts that made up this sort of and I think you can you know look at it depending if you're a Leaf fan it's certainly a tragedy a Shakespearean tragedy so that was sort of the way um it, it, it fell upon me and then the more we went into it the more it made sense because then while you couldn't tell the story of everybody who was in the series you could really tell the story of six or seven you know people who were really principals of the story and they didn't have to be players so it it, it the more it, it sort of developed that way the better it seemed uh, to allow me to tell the story i wanted to tell
1: yeah, I, I just kept thinking of back to like, you know, Mr. Pierce's grade 11 English class back in the day when I was in high school, you know, dramatis persona. And uh, is it sort of like the fact that was there sort of reality at that time? Sports could still seem like a bit of a morality play. Good guys and bad guys, every character oh, wanting definitely. something.
2: Yeah, I think that's definitely right. I mean, I think I mean, this, this was in certainly the days before what we now refer to generally as analytics, right? It was about good guys, bad guys. It was about, that guy's a good player. Now it's about, well, that guy, he makes this much money. His course is this. His you know his shot uh, suppression rate is this number, and therefore I think this of him. It wasn't like that. And, and not necessarily that it was simpler, because you always had differing opinions, but it was more of, what you saw and what you thought, less about the details that went around him. Was a guy a good player in your eye or a bad player? So, um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I really try to, I guess you could look at it as simpler times, but anybody who was around in 93 in Toronto and L.A., those were not simple times in those cities. They were complicated times. And the NHL, Well, in some ways it was simple, it was also a mess. So it was
0: really complicated. Even in Kingston, for us, it might have been complicated times then. (laughs) Um, And, of course, we know why. Um, In terms of of creating, this is a drama. This book unfolds like a drama. There's acts, there's seven chapters, seven games. You talked about that. Was there a character, a specific character you were drawn to at the time? And did that change when you went back? I mean, for example, I would guess that Gilmore, being in Toronto, might have been a central figure or Gretzky. When you went back, was there, you know, Bill Berg, for example, factors in a, a large way in this mm-hmm. book? So,
2: um, I don't think at the outset there was a particular character because I knew all these guys. And then I, over the succeeding years, I'd got to know them better and better and better and better. Um, you know, even somebody like Wayne Gretzky, I've known and talked to Wayne for 30 years. Um, so um, I, I wouldn't say that there was somebody who I thought, Um, I think I began to see some of them in slightly different ways in their importance in the series. I think Marty McSorley would certainly be, who's chapter one, act one, would certainly be a player who I think, if you went back now and really looked at that series honestly and gave out an MVP trophy, you would give it to Marty McSorley and not Wayne Gretzky uh, for what he was able to accomplish in that series. But what really became fun was all the other guys you talked to along the way, um, Glenn Anderson, Mike Donnelly, guys who didn't play roles. And not just for what they did, but for what the series meant to them, how it hit them.
0: Um, The interview process, then, in that case, you were obviously in L.A. um, You went to Kingston. You went to Bill Berg's house in Beamsville, I think, or outside of Beamsville. How long was the book... Uh, in terms of from start to finish, how long did it take, and, and where, where, um, you know, where did it take you for these interviews? And was it hard to, you know, to track down a guy like Wayne? This isn't the Marty Broder book where you probably right. are working in partnership with him, right? Um,
2: so, I mean, it, it was a long process, and there was some stops and starts along the way. I mean, almost halfway through, there were some issues, and it stopped for, geez, I don't know, five six months. So, um, that part was. Difficult. I hadn't totally because I, I wrote the first book on the 67 Leafs uh, along with Gord Stelic. So we worked on that together. Um, I did the book with Brodeur. I did a book uh, along with Garrett Joyce on uh, uh, Alex Ovechkin, but this time I was on my own, which was kind of what I wanted to do. But I'd never sort of had this big a thing. And again, it was figuring out okay, how many guys do I need to, to get? to make this seem legitimate, to make it feel like I'm representing the story. So there was a there was some traveling around. There was a lot by phone. Generally speaking, guys wanted to talk. They really did, and they were excited to talk. There were a couple of instances where I didn't get somebody, or maybe, you know, you always, when you write a book, think, maybe I should have gone after that, maybe I should have done after that. Um, but I really, at certain points, stopped because I feared... Complicating the story too much and making it too dense. So, um, uh, yeah, it was. It was like a lot of people tell you when they when they do a book like this. It's not like just sitting in your basement coming up with ideas. You go out and you talk to people, and they change. They change the way you look at the story and the way you write the story.
0: So you might have had an idea about certain things, and then you revisit, as you did with McSorley, or interview someone. And, and yeah. was there a specific examples aside from McSorley where things may have?
2: There were, changed? yeah, there were there were definitely things where, because I was there for all seven games, and I covered that Leaf team pretty intensely, and uh, there were definitely things where, first of all, watching the games, going, "Oh yeah, that's how it happened," so you don't you don't you don't necessarily remember.
0: And you said it was it was actually relatively difficult to get some of the game tapes,
2: correct? Yeah, it's weird with Hockey Night in Canada and stuff like that. It's more difficult than you think, particularly in today's rights environment. But I was able to, to do that and watching them shift by shift, play by play, rewind, look at it again, see how things happen. And you saw, um, I, I, I remember and part of what I was thinking about was how differently the game was played. Um, so that was already there in my mind. But when you really watch that series, to me, a couple of things really pop out. That the Kings, the Leafs were really running on just a few guys. And that really became evident to me more and more and more as, as we went on. It was Gilmore and Wendell and Glenn Anderson and a couple of other guys. And the Kings had more guys. And the other thing that really became apparent to me, and, and I remember looking back, I mean, Pat Burns was the star. He was the coach. He had been with the Canadians. He'd been with uh, Team Canada in 91 at the Canada Cup. He was a big name. Barry Melrose was a rookie coach. But when you look at that series and how it played out, Burns didn't outcoach him. I don't know if Melrose outcoached him, but it was at least a draw. And by being a draw, I think that meant advantage LA. So that was that, those were a couple of things that really came clear to me by re-go, uh, re-watching it all over again.
1: Now in the prologue I think I think there may be some misperception when it says the last good year, like people do think, Oh, okay, it's like old man yells at cl- Cloud. Not saying you're the old man, I'm just referencing the well, sim- I'm the not, sim- not as young as I used to be. Not, none of us are. <laughs> I'm referencing the you know Simpsons meme, right? But uh you do say, I think you clarify very early on, the NHL was a better story. What what, right. what, what what does that sort of concept entail? So,
2: so I mean, everybody looks at things from their own perspective. Um, and I think we see that more and more now with social media, right? Everybody gets to be the journalist if they want and tell you what they think, what they see from their seat. Um, so I wanted to tell a story from a journalist's perspective point of view a personal journalist's point of view Um, and and in that that's how i deal with with you know events that i cover all i want is a good story i want a good story this series was an amazing story filled with amazing characters at a time when they were so much more accessible and the owners were accessible you knew more about these guys in a long ways uh, you know, I've covered this Leaf team uh, to some degree uh, they have now. I don't think any, I don't think fans or any of us know that much about Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, William Nylander, you know, a lot of these guys. I know Morgan Riley a bit because I got a chance to go visit him when he was a junior at Moose Jaw. So um, what I was trying to communicate was this for me was the, uh, the it, was, it was the last good year of that story. Of the way the NHL used to be. What the NHL is now is in a lot of ways fantastic, and I understand people love it. I just think the story is not as compelling, not as rich in many ways as the story was back then.
1: And how much was it the fact that that amplified by the fact there was so much? uh, I always think of that term desperate hockey, and it seemed like that was kind of you had two franchises that. Didn't have that status of being winners, mm-hmm. but you also had two owners who were, you know, basically just trying to stay one step ahead of, uh, you know, the the, uh, the reckoning that was coming for them. <laughs> yeah, no, I I think there was a sense of
2: desperation. You know, you look across the NHL today, there isn't really a, a, a franchise that's on fire, right? That looks like it's got to move tomorrow. I mean, we've been talking about Arizona forever. But back then, there would have been two or three or four. I mean, there were constant stories like that um, that were were going on. So, um, you you know, when when you're a journalist, you're not looking for necessarily the happy story where everything's going well. You're looking for trouble. (laughs) And there was trouble in this series. As you say, talk about the owners. I mean, McNall ends up going to prison. Stavro might have ended up going to prison, but didn't, but ended up paying fines and doing all sorts of stuff and ultimately lost control of his whole of, of his whole empire. And that was going on behind the scenes. We didn't even know it at the time um, what exactly was going on with those guys.
0: From a writing perspective, beat writing at the time, you know, three seven-game series in a row, every other night mm-hmm. there's a game, and every night there's a, a huge story, whether it's a wraparound, Borshevsky, can you travel back and and tell us and our listeners about what that was like for you the 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 grind of that as a writer?
2: so the best I can remember it was as a total blur. <laughs> and in fact, you know, I've gained more perspective on it in the years since than I had at the time. Um, because so that was my fourth year. My first year, they'd actually made the playoffs under Doug Carpenter, but that had begun with. Gord Stelick being fired just before the season, replaced by Floyd Smith, George Armstrong not wanting mm-hmm. to be the coach, so Doug Carpenter. So they make the playoffs, and then that looked like things were kind of going, and then they then they just went awful again for two more years. So I guess I was sort of thinking that was what was going to happen again, as were a lot of Leaf fans. But then Doug Gilmore came in, and Pat Burns came in, and the narrative changed. So it happened. It wasn't a slow build. You know, like things are with this current Leaf team or with this was not a gradual year-by-year. It came out of nowhere. And the excitement and craziness of that playoff series, nobody expected them to get past Detroit, let alone almost make the Stanley Cup final.
0: So it was a blur at best. Do you remember anything about the filing of the deadlines or (laughs) or anything like that? Oh, yeah.
2: Well, we at that time. Now you're really getting into the nitty-gritty of it. that time, we had those... Old uh, Radio Shack. Um, they were they would you wouldn't even call them laptops, but they were computers. I don't know exactly what they were, and they had these couplers. So you had to plug in the couplers and then put each of the couplers over the the two the, on the headset on the, of the of the telephone. And so you'd listen for the dial and then quickly put the thing on and then hope it would go. And you'd wait for that sound. You know those beep, bah, beep you know those kind of yeah, sound. yeah, yeah. And Doing that in a stadium with 17,000, 18,000 people, I mean, you were holding your breath all the time. And at that time, the Toronto Star had way more deadlines. We had a final, which came out at noon every day. We had, I think, three or four deadlines at night. So you would file and then file again then file again. And you could go late into the night and then early in the morning. So I, I guess between... What was a, a, I mean, when I went to journalism school, not to age myself, but we've already given that away. <laughs> I mean, I learned on a typewriter. And then by this, we were just beginning to work on computers. And the, the, there was a, a little bit of a hint of the internet, but not really, that was starting to come. So your access to information, you had to do things in a totally different way. If you wanted to know something about a player or a team, you had to go to the library. Or you had to call a team, or you had to. What I think happened in a lot of cases, guys just went off the top of their head. So, the job of a journalist covering the league at that time was. It's not the same. It wasn't the same job it is now. It is in some ways, but technology and the where the league was made it a completely different job.
0: And the travel in this series too was yeah. obviously wearing both teams less so for the Kings, as you point out, because they had a charter for you. Flying back and forth must have been quite interesting. I liked it. Yeah,
2: I did it. But then it was fun. And the Leafs had played in the Western Conference. So we were kind of used to it. Mm. So and I loved going to L.A. You know, I still love going to L.A. Um, But it was so I, I covered a Stanley Cup final once between Dallas and New Jersey. And I think New Jersey was it, the series was about over but then New Jersey won in overtime mm-hmm. so we had to go all the way back to Dallas. I am like, mm-hmm. oh. you know, so that's a heavy slog. Right. Traveling between Toronto and LA when this is so exciting and travel was different back then, right? Before 9/11, it was easier mm-hmm. to get in and out of airports. So it it, it wasn't the dr- the 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 sheer drudgery it would be today doing the same thing.
0: Um you talked about this book being in your in your head for a while and then you went back to it. Am I correct? Is that kind of the process you had you had an idea and then came back to it? Is is that safe or uh yeah. Um I mean I'm just trying to remember going back to the acknowledgments. I think you referred to something like that where you you know it'd been, it'd been was it rescued off the heap or is that a safe is that, <laughs> I think I'm trying to find the pull of the drawer.
2: You guys know it's you have ideas that just sit around in your head, right? Right. You no. know? And and I mean frankly I I really after the the one before that I thought I'm not going to do this anymore. And I was busy. I got four kids. I'm doing television, radio writing, I really wasn't thinking I was going to write another book.
0: The, the reason I ask is because during this time, Todd Denoe put out the book, A Season in Time, which is about the whole season. Mm-hmm. And so was that maybe an influence to go on and focus directly on the series? No, no. no
2: I, I think I'm a real, um, I'm a really a history buff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I really like going back and looking at events, knowing what we know now. And I think to me, the more specific you can be, the more interesting it is, the more, you know, it's about this year or whatever. So Margaret MacMillan's great book, Paris 1919, you know, was about that specific time, mm. not about the, not all of World War One, but about that specific time where a lot of decisions were made that would influence the world for the next century. So to me, and in fact, I think you had, I've had people say to me, well, Montreal won the cup. Why is this series interesting and I think that's a good question because I didn't pick this series just because uh, the Leafs were in it or whatever I picked it because it was representative to me of a certain place in time and explained what it was like then more than anything else so you know I mean like I say well and part of it I couldn't get anybody else to think it was a good idea (laughs) <laughs> um, so I had to wait till somebody else thought it was a good idea and Penguin came along.
1: And how important in terms of that knowing what we know now, I, I liked how the book point really took the time to explain like where the, where the guys in it are. And now that they're sort of in their mid 50s, like yeah. how important was it to show like the the self-care and health challenges people such as Marty McSorley deal with on an everyday basis?
2: I, like, I think that adds layers to the story. Um like, again, to make reference to that great Margaret McMillan book, well, we know how the decisions and how they played into the years that happened. Well, we know what a physical force Marty McSorley was then. And to see him now and the physical struggles he's having, I think adds a layer for the reader to sort of see it. And, and yet to see that he's still as combative, still as excited to talk about that story, still as insistent that... You know, the, the move he made to Mug Gilmore was the right move that had to be done at the time. Um, you know, I, I think that just... The story just keeps giving and giving and giving. And I think the trick was to wait a long enough period of time that the story could breathe. Unfortunately, we lost some people along the way, Pat Burns, Peter Zezel, um, uh, who are both great people. Um, but long enough that you could really look back at it with the right lens... But not too long that people would go, yeah, I don't even remember that series. Because it's amazing how people remember that series.
1: Yeah, I think there, you make a specific reference to this concept that 25 years is the perfect time for a deep dive. Yeah,
2: yeah. well, I stole that idea. I mean, that was <laughs> that was thievery. Because Brad Fay, as I mentioned in the acknowledgments, he gave me the book, Anatomy of a Song. And it makes the argument that uh, a song can, or a piece of music, but a song, pop song, can only be considered iconic when it has passed a period of 25 years, a generation. And I thought, well, that's an interesting idea. How long was it? Oh, yeah, 25 years. And so it kind of worked out perfect.
0: Growing up as a Leaf fan, I always held that particular um, season in a special place in my heart, and I still do. And And these two books, your book and Todd's book, actually gave me the 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 base for that the, the validity that that was in fact a special time not just because the Leafs were good and it was the first mm-hmm. time I saw them be good so that's what I liked about it
2: yeah and and the the fun stuff was covering like I said uh, covering the league at that time I mean it really was you know you just walk in the dressing room of any team and there'd be players there and you'd go okay I'll go talk to that guy and you'd go talk to that guy there were fewer walls um, there have been many more walls that have been built up over the last 25 years. And, and to me, and I know the NHL sees it differently, to me it's to the detriment of the players because I think now fans see them much much more one or two dimensionally. Then you could see them three or four dimensionally. We saw Doug Gilmore getting married to Amy Cable. We knew Wendell Clark because we knew his dad, Les, was almost as well-known as Wendell was. Well, I'm trying to think if I know the name of any of the of the fathers, the parents of the Leafs now, or the wives, or all that sort of stuff. So, you know, you you got to see them in in more ways than just as hockey players, just as statistics than than you do now.
0: Structurally, we we talked where you talked about this earlier uh, in this podcast about the acts and the drama and, and creating theater essentially, or or, or recording theater. Um, Al Strachan wrote that uh, Gary Bettman has turned fans into accountants. Um, <laughs> I I guess I'm I'm using that as a base for my question, which is, in terms of analytics and contracts, is the challenge for a writer now, whether you know coming into the business or existing writers such as yourself, to balance some of that information with this drama to create a, a full story, or are they two poles? Yeah. Are you an analytics writer or and or a writer that's you know cr- recording this drama
2: I think that is the challenge um, you know and uh, I don't uh, agree uh, with many things that Al Strachan says but I think I in some ways I agree with that um, and um, I, I'm torn on that you know like because I live in a house for better or for worse with <laughs> five other, five leaf fans and they're not looking at analytics. But then they're also not watching the game the, the way that I did when I was a kid, where I was glued to the television set and didn't move. Mm. You know, my, I remember my son, in, you know, he'd watch for a while when he was twelve or thirteen. Then he'd go and he'd go on a skateboard for a while, or he and then he began to watch more things on YouTube. You know, m- you know, my daughter is she watches it, and my my three daughters they watch it in a different way. So, I, I I'm not sure that I can speak for all hockey fans, but I think. My sense is there's a bit of a divide between what um, uh, media now thinks fans are demanding and what they're actually demanding. And at the essence of it, at the center of it, I think what fans are still demanding is tell me the story. And I guess the debate between those of us in the business is how to best tell the story and how to best accurately portray what's going on on the ice, and I think that is a real challenge.
0: So, will the next great writer be the one that somehow <laughs> melded these two things together and and changed the game forever? Well,
2: you know, it's funny. At the end, I had I had an idea in this that I was going to go and do it. Look at the um, at the games again, and then have them broken down with modern modern analytics. I decided against it for for a bunch of reasons, but um, I think so. I I mean, I feel. I have to be careful because, again, I don't want to be, what is it, old man yells at clouds. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's, it's a meme. Uh, you know, I, I want to be careful because I'm certainly not an analytics expert. I understand them to some degree. Um, I use them to some degree in my work. But I really think, I'm, I'm, I'm not yet convinced that most vans want, that's how they want the story told. Um, But I'm prepared to be convinced either way. Um, But I'm I'm not. And I would argue most hockey fans that I run into really don't know that much about analytics. They still see the game and watch the game in kind of traditional ways. I love this guy. I love my team. I hate that guy. I hate that team. My team won, my team lost, as opposed to, you know, and, and the analytics are fascinating to me. I'm just not sure... That's the best way to tell a
1: story. Yeah, but it's, de- it's definitely in our sports now. Like, oh, uh, I, I sometimes, it's not going away. I, I'm sometimes like, um, you know, as someone who was, you know, I'm sometimes like, I, I've gotten what I've wanted now. You know, teams are putting, right. like, baseball teams put their best hitter yeah. in the leadoff spot instead of the cleanup spot. Yeah. And now I'm like, what do I, where do I go from here? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, like, uh, like I say, I'm a big history buff. So I was
2: just in Southern California and I was visiting the, the Nixon Library. And, you know, you could describe Richard Nixon and his administration in terms of trade deficits and the economy and what the dollar did and what inflation did during those years. Now, those are all elements in it. Or you could describe it by Nixon, the Mm. paranoid, insecure guy sitting in his office, having every conversation recorded. Now, you tell me which of those is the most interesting story now the probably the answer in some ways is some amalgamation of both um and i think that's what we're kind of working towards what i'd like to see a little less of is i mean i think there's a bit of a division in the media in the media out there and there's a lot of people on one side lobbying at those analytics geeks and the other side going you know msn mainstream media but i think we're all in this together Trying to find an interesting way to tell stories.
1: Now, putting yourself from the, in the reader's perspective with this book, what would you hope they learn from the book that would challenge their memories of uh, those seven games between the Leafs and the Kings twenty-five years ago?
2: Um, I, I boy, that's a good question. Um, well, I think uh, what would challenge their memories. See, my memory is so bad sometimes, <laughs> so that I have 19. to go back. Everything challenges well, I, my I, memory. I had,
1: for, I had forgotten what how the Kings got their power play late in Game Six. of you? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was just kind of like, what happened there?
2: Well, normally, if, whenever I bring this up with people, they say, "Wasn't that the one where there was the? Where either uh, Gretzky took a penalty or Gilmore got a penalty or somebody?" And and so I would say, you know, you know, we in analytics there's always talk about the recency effect you pass 25 years people's version of what they think happened is so different i've been listening to these malcolm gladwell podcasts lately and he talks all about how you know people are blamed often for um uh, having false representations of the past when really it's memory is unreliable in general so I think that was part of why I thought it was important to go over all the games and tell the, tell that part of the story as well because I think you have to refresh people's memories. Um, but to just to I think the one part is um, you know the personal battle. The one one of the key elements and we asked we talked about this before or what do I think people should take out of it? The Gretzky Gilmore battle within the battle and the way in which the Kings went after Gilmore and the way in which the Leafs didn't go after Gretzky, I think ended up playing a huge role in how that series was played out. Gilmore got bashed around, punched in the head, beat up, all sorts of stuff. Leafs didn't lay a glove on Gretzky, who was, we didn't know until later, nursing a broken rib at that time in that series. So the respect the Leafs for, had for Gretzky and the willingness of the Kings to say, we're going to play 93 hard, I think had a lot to do with how that series turned out.
0: Some of the nuggets you uncover uh, that I'd never seen before was one, it was Gilmore's respect for Gretzky in mm-hmm. terms of h- him being an idol. I, I didn't know. Was that news to you or you, had you known that?
2: Um, you know, I, I think I sort of knew it, but I hadn't seen him express it in quite that way before because their timeline, I mean, they, they were very close in junior hockey together. It's not like... Gilmore's, you know, the age difference is that much. Like, they're really contemporaries. But Gilmore doesn't see himself as, and didn't see himself that way. And when I go back, I remember I grew up in Hamilton. I remember Wayne Gretzky coming to play at Mountain Arena against Gordie Howe. And they had those little things. And he was, you know, I first started hearing about him when he was 13 years old. And by the late 70s, he was already playing professional hockey when Doug Gilmore was, was coming up to play junior but the legend of Gretzky at that time in the 70s I think is so different than what the legend of a player would be now I mean we all kind of knew about Connor McDavid but back then there was just I knew a kid I went to high school with who was a goalie and one of his memories was playing against Gretzky's team and Gretzky scored 13 goals against him I mean it was so out of this world, what this Gretzky thing was supposed to be, and this was on the heels of Bobby Orr, so um, I think because of that, it was easy for Gilmore to see uh, Gretzky not as a contemporary, but as someone that he could model himself after, and that's what he did.
0: Also, um, you used to astutely pointed out um, this this was the last year of uh, the Smythe and the Norris division, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I'm pretty sure it was, um, and the Cup had kind of gone through the road for the Cup had gone through Alberta, mm-hmm. and and how how did it not kind of Norris. get pulled over? No, not the <laughs> Norris, no. But how did this get pulled over through the Gilmore trade into the into the you know the, the traditional right. road to the Cup?
2: Right. So uh, um, so and this and this this impacted both teams, LA and Toronto, because Toronto, of course, they were just terrible. Um, and and they, they, I mean, Wendell was a star, but he wasn't seen as a star figure on the same par as Gretzky, Lemieux, all those guys across the league. And the Kings, um, you know, they had got Gretzky in 88, but they hadn't been able to get it past the second round. They kept losing to Edmonton or Calgary, Edmonton or Calgary. So then in the winter of, um, of 92, Gilmore goes to the Leafs. In one of the, I think we'd all agree, one of the most one-sided trades of all time, that really weakened the flames. So all of a sudden they weren't the threat to the Kings that they had been, and the and the Oilers were, were already starting to struggle. So that benefited the Kings, and of course the Gilmore trade itself really benefited the Leafs. It transformed that team into something it hadn't been before. So. Um, yeah, I mean, all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the Battle of Alberta in the mid to late um, 80s had been sort of the centerpiece of everything important was going on there. And all of a sudden now, with the Gilmore trade, with the Gretzky trade, with guys like Glenn Anderson and Grant Fuhrer and Mark Messier and starting to move on, the tension, uh, the attention moved from Alberta and for this series, anyways, went to Toronto and LA
0: with a lot of the same actors. With a
2: lot
1: of the same actors. Yeah, how would that, would could that have played out the same way with the structure of the NHL now and the cap and everything and the way revenue is a little more, more shared? Because I think at one point you're talking about, oh, the Flames were in a real money crunch. Their payroll was going up to ten million dollars. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, I remember when I first started covering the Leafs in 1989. The uh, Rob Ramage was the highest paid player. He was making five hundred thousand dollars a year. <laughs> I mean, it is. it is, And that's part of why plays into the title the last good year. Because it was after then that money really became a huge part of not just the league, but fans. You didn't know. It's hard to explain to people now. You had no idea what these guys were making. You you really didn't. You didn't know what Wayne Gretzky was making. You didn't know what rookies were making. Or uh, and, and then when Eric Lindros came in and started saying, oh, hang on a second, that started to change. So, um, you know, the the money part of it really began to change the way, the perception of the game in general.
0: I feel like I remember Harry Neal on a Hockey Night in Canada broadcast, probably late 80s, Explaining how Bobby Smith didn't want anyone to know how much money he made because mm-hmm. there was a whole salary disclosure thing mm-hmm. going on, and yeah, we've now you can just go online and you know who, how much everyone, you know,
2: everybody <laughs> makes, right? I, I mean, you know how much the coaches are making and a lot of a lot of things. So, you know that that impacted it. But as far as that trade, mm-hmm. could you make that trade today? Not a chance. I mean, who would have that much cap space, um, <laughs> you know, to take on the salaries at the least? It was a, in a lot of ways, it was a salary dump. For for Calgary, they were trying to move guys out so they could, you know, make enough keep the guys they had. Um, and Cliff Fletcher talks about that in the book, and he sees it uh, from a sympathetic point of view towards um, today's general managers because back then, I mean, it's so different. Like for example, who's off to a terrible start this year? The Kings, um, you know, and, and Pittsburgh struggling. Back in 92, 93, there would have been a trade and not just a little one-for-one one like they did, but trades. Like you could actually imagine trades happening in December to really change teams. Um, now, as Fletcher points out, GMs don't have that option. And if they do make a trade and it involves an expensive player and that doesn't work out, that can that can hamstring a team for years and years and years. So certainly from his perspective, he thought – that was something with the Leafs coming out of that the ballard air with money to spend. That gave him an advantage to make that kind of a trade.
0: I have a confession to make. You want to know what it is, Nate? I don't remember watching Game six. I have no recollection of it, but it was it, late it you was a, yeah it was late <laughs> and i think it was a saturday no, it was th- it was a, sa- it seventh, was a school night. thursday maybe was, i think
1: maybe i'll just delve into my memory of it i i was a very nocturnal uh grade 10 student at the time <laughs> much to my 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 father's consternation he would come out i'd be like watch this was when david letterman was still on nbc mm-hmm. at 12 30 he'd come out just give me this glare snap the tv off no words okay oh, yeah, go to bed so I was up watching that game with the TV volume at about six. What I remember is no one knew what had happened the next day mm-hmm. at school. were was like, "Oh, okay. they had gotten up and saw the pay- oh, the Kings won in overtime. Okay, I guess there'll be a game on Saturday night." Uh, but what what was the re- what sense did you have of the reaction in Toronto to the Gilmore Gretzky well inc- Carrie Fraser incident?
2: But you're exactly right in that. Let's you know, no TSN and Sportsnet with twenty four hour you know things, um, so you you might wait till the next day. So. Um, for me, it would have been probably, I had no idea what the reaction in Toronto was because we were, five, it was late. It would have been probably one o'clock in the morning, something like that. Because a lot of the games were eight o'clock starts back then. Mm-hmm. One o'clock in the morning and then get up the next morning and get back on a plane and go back to Toronto for game seven. So there wasn't a lot of time to figure out what the reaction was. And then you get in Toronto and you're almost breathless. And then Game Seven's upon you. That's what I mean. Like, when I say it was a bit of a blur, uh, it, it, it really was at the time. And for me, it was, what was interesting in that thing, I actually, I didn't include this story in the book, but Game 7 was actually, uh, I got into a massive fight with my editor <laughs> on deadline because I wrote something like, because it was obvious that, that in the, uh, and this doesn't give away anything, that Gretzky had high-sticked. Gilmore and he should have been penalized there's no debate about that the debate is what you know what role it played and should they have seen it that sort of stuff but there's no debate that he should have high sticked him so I think I wrote a lead saying something that you know Wayne Gretzky shouldn't even have been on the ice but he was and he scored the winning goal something like that and my editor at the time so I was a beat writer not a columnist um, he said you can't write that that's opinion not a fact and I and so we really got into it I, on deadline. I said, that is not an opinion. It is a fact that he should have been kicked out of the game, but he wasn't. And therefore, he scored the winning goal. Um, and so for me, I probably was a lot less worried about what people were thinking in back in town and more like I wanted to strangle my sports editor, but I didn't. There was no oh. strangling allowed back then.
0: Well, I was going to ask you to describe what happened for those that, that didn't <laughs> know, didn't know, but you just did. So I want to, uh, we always like to get our authors to read a uh, part of their book. Oh, and okay. We, could you please read uh, what happened to Carrie Frazier? Now, hmm. can you please explain, first of all, uh, how Carrie Frazier played a role in this, if you haven't already, I forgot if you mentioned No, I haven't
2: yet. Um, so uh, this is fun to read because I did an audio version of this book, oh. <laughs> and that took me Six hours for four days, and yeah. that was a real challenge so i'm kind of i'm a little more used to it now
0: um yes yeah, so carrie fraser uh, so
2: Carrie fraser i think is obviously he he becomes as big a character in this story as um as any as uh any player um in, in a lot of ways. So, and, so go ahead. go ahead. I'm just going to tell
0: you where to read from. It's just from yep. that line to that line.
2: So he was interesting because a lot of people looked at him because he had this great hairstyle, that he was a bit of a prissy. He was like a pretty boy. He wasn't a hockey guy. <laughs> well, he was a hockey guy who came from a hockey family. And he was ready for this game. He was the highest rated or one of the highest rated NHL referees. He, he went on to referee more games than anybody else. So it's not like... Uh, they should have had somebody else, or they had the worst referee there. They had the right guy; he just unfortunately didn't make the right call.
0: So this is after right. he makes the call, and he's you know hearing about the fallout of the non right. the non call.
2: He's starting to get wind of oh oh, I think we. I think he always knew that they'd missed one. So his dad was a guy named Hilton Fraser and Hilton Fraser was a tough hockey player growing up in the in the 60s in the leagues that he played back then and he talked and I we talk about it in the book about he taught Carey Fraser how to fight in their kitchen and and Fraser Carey Fraser was a lefty so that helped him in a lot of battles but he was a guy who fought a lot when he played hockey So after the game the next day Fraser flew back home to Southern New Jersey and called his father who for years had recorded all the NHL games his son officiated. My dad said, Well we had a little excitement here last night, says Fraser. His father had fallen asleep in his favourite chair and at about 3.30am had woken to a commotion outside. He had a little motorhome parked out back and he looked out the window to see a car ramming into the trailer hitch of the vehicle. The car then backed up and rammed into the motorhome again. Dressed only in his underwear, Hilt Fraser whipped open the patio door, grabbed an axe he had at the back door for splitting wood, and chased the car down the street, delivering a few solid blows before the car drove off into the night. On hearing his father's story, Fraser called NHL security, and a few days later he got a call from league security boss, L. Wiseman. They'd found the car in a body shop in Kitchener, Ontario, getting repairs for damage from an axe, he says. They questioned the man. He was a Leafs fan from Kitchener, and he was pissed off at my call and had gone to my hometown looking for my family home. It didn't stop there. Fraser's mother, Barbara, kept getting obscene phone calls from irate Leafs fans. My mom was probably tougher than my dad. She was a real hockey mom, says Fraser. So I gave her one of my whistles, and like a good hockey mom, she tied it onto a skate lace and hung it on a hook by the phone. As soon as an obscene phone call came in, she had the whistle and she would blast it into the phone. So the obscene phone call stopped. This is the nice little part at the end here. He says almost two decades later, long after Hilton Fraser had passed, Barbara began to suffer from dementia and moved into a senior's residence. When her sons went to clean up the family home so it could be sold, they saw some things remained unchanged. By the phone in the house, the whistle was still on the skate lace," says Fraser.
0: <laughs> That's amazing.
2: It's a good little story. Yeah, but but yeah. the
0: the raw emotion. I mean, that conveys. I mean, the raw emotion that people yeah. felt. I mean, I mean, we were like I said, me and neighbor in Kingston. We felt it there. I can just ima- only imagine what it was like here. And how mm-hmm. you know, the fallout of that, and even with the players, you know, you met, you wrote about Dave Ellis. Just said, I can't talk about this series.
2: Yeah. I, I and I was amazed because Dave Ellis and I always had a good relationship, and I, and uh, um, and he was really polite about it. He just said that was one of the most difficult defeats of my career. I take no pleasure in revisiting it. I'm sorry, I can't.
0: Did did, did you get that from others as well? Did you follow No, or, he
2: was the only one uh, that really said, I don't want to talk about it.
0: But in terms of the players that you, well, I guess in terms of the players you did talk to, could you still sense oh, yeah. for the one? For obviously the Leafs, it was you know the the Kings players probably love talking about it. I'm, I'm imagining.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, uh, I mean Gretzky loves talking about it. Uh, you know, and you would think all the games that guy played, you know, that, there had to be a million other games he would talk to just as well. But he loves talking about it. Um, yeah, I think for some guys it was hard. I like, I think for. Um, for Gilmore, it really was a victory in some ways because he played at the highest level, and he'd always thought he could play at the highest level, and he did. For Wendell, um, I think he probably played the greatest game he'd ever, he ever played or ever would play in game six. And he gave it all. He thought he, he was close to not even being able to play in game six, his back was so bad. And then he was great again in game seven. He was great that whole series. He could have been like Ron Hextall winning the Consmite the one year in defeat. Mm -hmm. You could have given Wendell the MVP in that series for what he did, and he got nothing out of it. And so I think that probably is a certain amount of, you know, there's a bittersweet level to that. Um, But I think most of the guys with the passage of time believe they were, A, they were part of a special team that didn't, neither one of those teams stuck together very long. So they were part of a special moment in time And they were part of a special series that a lot of people remember. And I think a lot of the guys, even those who didn't win, take solace in that.
0: Here's uh, the bookmark I kept uh, that page on. I don't know. Oh, wow. That was the first Leaf game I ever attended. You were probably in the press box uh, for that.
2: Uh, That was, uh, that's
0: 93. Yeah. (laughs) Just, probably.
2: Just, <laughs> oh, I remember clearly.
0: <laughs> yeah. Not, uh, <laughs> no, I just wanted to show that I, I saw it today. On I was looking for a bookmark, and wow, I found uh yeah old Maple Leaf Gardens uh ticket stub.
2: You know, and that's one of those things. Like I, uh, you know, when I say it was all of blur, I don't have anything from back then. I don't, I don't, I don't tend to keep any memorabilia, anyways. But probably, like when I covered um, the famous. Um, Federer Nadal match at at Wimbledon that a lot of people say is the greatest match ever played. I kept my notes, and so every once in a while I'll run across and I think, "Wow, that's pretty cool." Um, I wish I'd kept some of my notes from back then. It probably would have a helped me write this book, <laughs> and b um, it would have been neat to have more than a, you know, more than a program or a stick or something like that. Because that's that's what we do as journalists, right? We 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 observe we write things down and then we try to reflect it as accurately as possible in what we're writing
0: damien you talked about tennis um explain to those of us or those listeners out there that are just strictly hockey guys know you from your hockey coverage you've obviously had a special relationship with tennis mm-hmm. i believe and again you can correct me if i'm wrong you've described it as like a good wind down when you're covering the cup and you can go to wimbledon and yeah, it's kind of a. Yep. I get,
2: I, I've definitely wr- written that. So, um, I mean, it was you know for it's funny because. I, I mean, I wouldn't be so bold as to say I was part of the story in '93, but when you're as involved as you are when you're covering a series like that, you kind of are a part of it. And so, all these guys had their own stories, their own backgrounds. So did I. I grew up in a. My parents are English immigrants. We didn't watch. There was no hockey on television in my house. I think the first time I ever went to Maple Leaf Gardens was with my dad. It was either 1970 or 71. We went to one other, and that was it until I started covering the Leafs. So um, we, were, we were a tennis family. We grew up, my parents played tennis, my sister played tennis, You know, my siblings played tennis, I played tennis. And really that was a a, a bigger sport in my household for the years I was growing up than any uh than any of these others so when i got to cover it uh as a as a working journalist years later that was pretty special
0: well we'd like to give our uh guests a gift oh uh, and i'm not gonna lie to you uh you just uh, you said you, you you were part you you know part of the story i agree because of course you were in the passion returns <laughs> and believe it or not had it not been for the postal strike i had a copy of the passion returns but oh We'll have to give you that later. Instead, this is a a tennis-related book. You can open it up and tell the listeners there is a gift receipt. You probably have read this, considering, I mean... um,
2: No, I haven't.
0: That is supposed to... Is this to
2: help me with my game?
0: (laughs) You know what? It's actually a philosophical book, and I remember in high school, our uh, phys ed teacher, you know, we wanted to play sports, and he's getting into the philosophy of... Be at one with the racket, and it's actually it was supposedly one of oh, yeah. the most seminal books on on tennis. Uh, can you tell our readers what it is? Or so this what it is?
2: this is called the Inner Game of Tennis, the classic guide to the mental side of peak performance by Timothy Galway. Um, it's interesting. Forward by Pete Carroll is that the football coach? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, it's interesting because I've been reading a lot of these ga- these kinds of books lately because now golf's more my game. And so I'm hoping maybe this can help my golf game. This <laughs> not just my tennis, <laughs> game. but uh, that. Well, that's really nice. Thank you very much. No that's problem. Nice of I, you guys.
0: I hope you uh, enjoy reading it. But uh, how did you ever end can up? Can start right now. You can not? start. You know, re- <laughs> audio book. Let's go. Um, how? How did you? How? Please explain. Uh, there's a cult following around the passion returns. Please explain how. And I actually want to build on this. So please, first of all, explain how you got involved with. Who asked? Was Mark Askin asking yep. you to be interviewed? Yep.
2: And uh, that's funny that you say there's a bit of a cult following because I actually am aware that there is a bit of a cult following, and I get lots of references because people like to see that I had <laughs> hair, and a fair amount of hair. I think we'd all agree I had I had hair in that, so things were different. Um, I I think um, I I think yeah I just got asked to you know give my point of view as did a number of other reporters and people that were involved in that series, um, but. Like this like the series, which sort of came from nowhere, or that or that playoff thing, this happened, I think Mark pulled it together like the next day or two days <laughs> later or three days later. So we were literally still breathless. Right. Um I think I covered some of the Stanley Cup final. I can't remember maybe games one and two or something like that. Um, but we were nothing
0: happened in those two games that was. A oh many. no, I covered.
2: <laughs> no, I covered game five. That's what I covered when the because I remember the uh, the Habs skating around with the cup at the Forum. Right. Um, so uh, um, yeah, it was kind of breathless, and I think because it all happened really quickly after the series, it captured, I think, a lot of the kind of the emotion of it. Because we were all kind of... And, I, and when I, whenever I've seen it, I always laugh because I'm sort of like, Wow, man, it was unbelievable what was going on. And that's how we felt um, covering it because for myself, I hadn't covered a series like that before involving the Leafs. They'd only been terrible. Um, and there was so much coming. It was like recently I was lucky enough. I went and saw uh, the Bruce Springsteen on Broadway show. And by about two-thirds of the way through, I was just like, I can't, It's just too much stimuli coming at me. <laughs> I, I, I can't even, I can remember the first half of the show, the second half, it was just a blur because it was just so much. And I think that's what this series was like. There was so much, there were so many stories, there were so many characters, there were so many stars, there were so many interesting things from Barry Melrose to Pat Burns to, you know, McNall to Gretzky to Gilmore, that at the end it was like, what just happened? And... I think that video, maybe that's why it does have this cult following captured that.
0: Do you think there's anything uh, that will ever top this that you could cover? I mean, Leafs could win the cup. Do you think yeah, that could...
2: That is a great question. Um, and you guys uh, would be as good a judge of it uh, as I would be. Um, I, I guess the answer is I don't I don't know. Mm. Um, I, I kind of feel... Now it's more of a, like then things were felt in a real visceral, personal way. Right. And now it's sort of a big, like there was no Leaf Nation back then. People were embarrassed to wear Leaf sure. jerseys. So I think now you feel part of a big group. Then it was almost as though you were, either you didn't want to tell people you were a Leaf fan or you um, were excited to be it and finally you had something to cheer for. So I'm not I'm not sure there'll ever be a series like that because the game is so different. Right. Right. I don't know about how Leaf fans would feel if they got to do that same run again with this modern team. It might be just as exciting
0: I think it's a it's a bit of an unfair question too, because a lot of stars aligned in a way for yeah. this series to be what it was, and I mean that's a generational thing right I mean, it could be another generation before something like that happens again where right yeah, so I mean well
2: and I think and even um uh, and I touched on this a little bit, and I don't know if I did it very well, but like Gretzky to me was symbolic of. What had happened to the Leafs they they'd won four cups in the 60s at a time when they controlled all the talent in Ontario right and he was born the same year I was but because he came along a little bit later he wasn't under that control so to me when he came back with the Kings to play the Leafs in that series it was a bit symbolic of of how the Leafs Had struggled so much in the post-expansion era because they couldn't just—they weren't just given the best players anymore—and how much they'd had to—and now they were—they had finally found the way to organize a good team—and here comes Gretzky, back to rip it out of their hands (laughs) at the last moment. So I think that makes it a spectacular story.
0: Uh, I was going to segue off of this with with the passion returns, but we went aside on that. You come from a time, and uh, by the way, I feel really bad if we're making you sound like you're, first of all, you're in great shape and you <laughs> could beat both of us up right now. So, um, But you come from a time when writers were writers, TV people were TV people, radio yeah. people were radio people. Was The Passion Returns, I mean, was that, first of all, unique for a writer to be on camera? Yes. And was that a precursor to doing what you do now where, yeah. you know, everybody, every writer is on TV. It's a multimedia thing now, right? I
2: hadn't, you know, I hadn't thought of that, but... I think uh at that point I I think the fan five ninety had just started or it was yeah, broadcasting in the evening and on weekends. Right. And so I'd done a couple of little things, but I don't think I'd been on television or anything like television before that. Um so I guess it was yeah, so maybe yeah. I mean it it I'd been I'd done a bit of radio, I think, that you'd go on the road and you'd be interviewed by by uh, other teams as a beat writer. So there was a little bit of that, but not television. And so, yeah, to be in that was sort of the beginning. But I mean, I, w- I wasn't really thinking, oh, that's where my future lies uh, doing that. Um, and I'm sure people who saw me said, that's not where your future lies. But uh, <laughs> it was the beginning again, you know, to this right. I think, I, I'm not sure if the last, to be honest with you guys, I'm not even sure that The Last Good Year is the right title. I just couldn't come up with a better one. Mm. Um, Really what I wanted to express was that year, that time was a
1: dividing line.
2: You know, there was there was yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yes. Sort of interrupt you, yeah. <laughs> I love the last picture yeah, you the last of picture Mike of F- Mike Folinho F- 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 in the dressing room. Yeah, just like sitting. how much does that capture the visceral visceral impact?
2: Yeah. And, and and how meaningful and I think it's meaningful to guys today too, but that I think well, to me what I see in that is a guy sitting in his in his uh, bare shirt and shorts in the in the dressing room, sitting there with a towel around his neck, you don't see that
0: anymore. Well, he'd, he'd be you in the lounge behind the dressing
1: room, maybe. or he'd be behind a podium. <laughs> yeah. right. The other thing I kind of found was interesting was the juxtaposition of the uh, the the brands and the sports equipment oh, yeah. next to him. Cooper. And yeah. he had that crazy helmet. Yeah, he, he had the Cooper shoulder pads and the LA gear sneakers. And I was just thought, <laughs> like, how much? Oh, well, that's we, very
2: good. I didn't even notice that.
1: How much with the with the emotional impact of that series, Damon? How much was it? This you mentioned it. Here's Gretzky coming back to beat mm-hmm. the Canadian team, but how much was the sense like, oh, you know, the Americanization of the NHL oh, is coming big. in full force here? And well, and again, and we so, as Canadians can't do too much to stop. So it.
2: the internet's coming in. Uh, the money's changing. Gary Bettman is now coming in as commissioner. Bob Goodenow is taking over the Players Association. Players' salaries are going to go through the roof. And at that time, it seemed like the Blue Jays had won the World Series, and so in Toronto it seemed that mattered more because they were beating the Americans at that game. The CFL was about to expand south. Um Bruce McNall had had come up to Toronto, and the first move he made was to bring up Rocket Ismail to come and play for them. So it it, it was very much at a time where it was felt up here like uh, the only thing that mattered really was to be able to play in against American teams and beat American teams. And so the fact that the Kings were the American team versus if they'd been playing Calgary or or at that time Winnipeg, I think was sort of, again, kind of symbolic.
1: Do you have anything off? Yeah, and I guess that you could throw in the fact that, you know, that was when Toronto was in the process of getting the NBA, too. So Yeah,
2: that's right. Like, in fact, in that year, they kind of really, they were talking about it and building a new building. So, yeah, this is fun, you know. Like, I never get to talk about this book as, with anybody this much. This is well,
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I want to keep going. I was going to say, I mean, I, I'm... Um, sure. I mean, I wanted to know if there's anything you wanted to add, uh, perhaps. But, hey, we can still keep going. You know what? Let's uh, one more question each, Nate. You got anything else?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Like, um, what did this sort of spark you in terms of maybe future projects you'd like to take on? Doesn't. (laughs) It exhausted me. I love the honest (laughs) answer. You know,
2: um, uh, I don't know. Like, I'm kind of at a, not to get. All personal, but I'm kind of at a a place in my career where I'm kind of trying to figure out okay, what is what is I've I've been lucky I got to do newspapers, books, television, radio. I got I've had the chance to do it all, so uh, I don't really know what'll come next. But I would say um, whether it sells 10 books or 10,000, I'm really glad I wrote it. I had something to say, I want I and 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 I really thank Penguin for this. I got to say it the way I want. To, I wanted to say it. Um, often in the in the process of books, um, my experience, anyways, is you get sort of pushed in certain directions that they think will sell uh, better. And Penguin never did that to me. Uh, this book got turned down once, or probably more than once. Uh, not this book. The one, the other mm-hmm. one. Um, it got turned down because people didn't see it, and Penguin did see it. Nick Garrison did see it, and more than that he let me write it the way i wanted to and in fact when he really understood what i wanted it to be he kept pushing me and pushing me and pushing me to write that book then um, so uh, i don't view it as the end of a career um, but i certainly view it as um, a personal accomplishment and again whether it sells 10 books or with the help of you guys, sales 10,000. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I feel like it was, like, incredibly worth doing. You know, so. Um,
0: I just want to go back to one quick thing. And, and you mentioned, you know, your family parents are English immigrants. Yep. Uh, was there a, a family soccer uh, football team? That, no. Or, no? no. No,
2: they were tennis people. Oh, it was more about Rod Laver than. Oh, uh, okay. There was, you know, there would be, I think I remember mentions perhaps of, you know, the 66 World Cup. But uh, other than that, no, nah, we weren't. It, we weren't a sports family, and back then, again, here we go. Old man yells at cloud. <laughs> um, back then, we just we weren't inundated with sports right. on television and media like we are now. Like we weren't. It wasn't just there all the time. It, it really wasn't. I mean. You know, I grew up in Hamilton, so I would read Bob Hanley and the Hamilton Spectator and get my scores. And if the Tiger Cats played in B.C., I wouldn't get it till a day later. And, you know, the Leafs, you know, they were black and white when I started watching. It was Hockey Night in Canada. And then you'd see, you know, they might have a midweek game. And you didn't get a lot of information on what was going on in L.A. or Minnesota or what. until NBC, you'd see them in the playoffs and they'd shoot, you'd see Danny O'Shea and the Minnesota North Stars taking on, you know, the Plager brothers and the St. Louis Blues. They're going, who the hell are these guys? <laughs> you know, and I mean, to me, the biggest thing was they had a, a midweek game or one week, once a week game of the Hamilton Fin Cups, or sorry, the Hamilton Red Wings before they became <laughs> the Fin Cups. So we didn't have this sort of tidal wave of, of sports coverage coming our way where you could pick and choose whatever you wanted to watch. So, you know, I, I, you know, they didn't, it wasn't about soccer. It wasn't, it wasn't even really about tennis. It was somebody asked me the other day, you, you must've played a lot of sports cause you know, fairly big guy. You must, I said, yeah, in the park with hmm. my friends. I didn't, you know, I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I got signed up to play hockey until I was 12 or 13. You know, that's, that's what sports was back then. It was about playing in the park with your friends and you had a general understanding there was stuff out there. When I saw my first Leaf game in 1970, sorry to prattle on, I had no idea that it was three years since they'd won the cup. So it didn't mean I was just going to see the team that I watched in black and white. And then when I walked into Maple Leaf Gardens, it was all color. It was like the Wizard yes. of Oz. Yeah. It was spectacular.
0: Did you have an idea that you didn't have an idea of the last time they won the cup, but did you have an idea you'd be in the press box there one day? No. No. <laughs> no how no. did that, this is probably the last part, I shouldn't be asking this now, but how did that career route start for That's you? That's
2: funny though, isn't it? I used to play games with hockey cards, and I'd do it behind the couch in our family room. and I had buttons, and I'd play them, playing games against each other, and I'd do the play-by-play, play, right? But I didn't, I didn't grow up dreaming I'd be part of that world at all. I didn't really have a clue. I mean, I was, I was about as clueless a teenager as you can imagine. And then when I left, uh, uh, I went to McMaster for four years, still clueless, thought, maybe I'll go to law school, and then journalism came along and I I had a, an instructor at Mac whose father had been a journalist at the Globe and Mail and he thought, oh, that's, you should go in that direction. So I went in that direction. But the plan was really to be to be involved in political journalism. And then it just I got sidetracked
1: <laughs> I haven't found my way back yet to where I was supposed to be. Yeah, I just wondered that I sort of got fixated on what you were saying. I played sports in the park. The guys you were covering at that time, they were they were from the era. They didn't they weren't twelve month a year hockey players. No. They played baseball in the summer. They they played yeah. they did school sports. How much do you think that chain you know shaped their socialization and made them more relatable as people to you as a writer?
2: Well, they were certainly more relatable to me, but we, we generally tend to be able to eat more easily relate to people of our own generation, right? We have similar shared experiences. Um, but certainly um, with the modern player, you get the sense that they are in full-time training from the time they're 12 or 13, maybe even earlier. Um, and that wasn't the case back then. And I think it made for more original stories of players and where they came from. Uh, you know, Bobby Orr growing up, you know, skating on the, the frozen lakes of Perry Sound. They came from different places. Um, I mean, I know that, well, actually, they come from Europe now as well. But then, you know, now most of the, of the top players come from Toronto, around Toronto, because this is where the money and the training and the, um, you know, it's become an upper middle class game. When I was growing up, it was a middle class to blue collar game. It wasn't a rich kids game at all. Now you get the sense it's a rich kid, kids game in a lot of ways. So, um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, I think it, that part of it has changed. But then you know, like I see I, 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 again, I talk, I, I relate to my own kids. My son loves YouTube, loves skateboarding. He'll go on and he wants to see Connor McDavid juggling the puck, right? You know, and what he the things that they can do now are things players couldn't do 20 years ago. So how can you not say it's fantastic now? Because the players are
0: fantastic. Is there anything you'd like to add?
2: Um, Well, it was nice for you guys to sit and chat with me about this book. I really thank you. I'm really proud of it. Um, You know, and I I think it was, uh, I feel like I put that story back out there again and hopefully told it in a way that a couple of times I've heard from people who have read it and saying, I'm not even really a sports fan, but I really like this because of, you know, you read about Bill Berg or Kelly Rudy or or Kerry Fraser and, and that sort of stuff. So, um, uh, I, I oh, I'll tell you the part I left out.
0: Okay, please do.
2: I'll tell you one part I left out. They wouldn't let me put it in. Oh, now is- I wish I had. <laughs> well, I had this idea. I want to know what you guys think because you do, you do a lot of this kind of stuff. So I had this idea that Game 6, we're going along, and, um, sorry, Game 7, and it gets to a certain point where it's uh, 3-3, and it's in the third period. And I had this idea to do kind of what would have been a flashback, but it would have been in sort of a diff set in a different type, and it would have been detailing what would happen and the Leafs win. (laughs) (laughs) And then go back to, but that's not the way it happened. And I really thought that would have been fun because I, I, I yeah. dreamt up I constructed a whole scenario in which instead of the puck going off Dave Ellett's leg Dave Ellett ends up being the guy <laughs> who gets the goal and the Leafs go on to the Stanley Cup final and blah, 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 blah. Um, they talked me out of it but I kind of wish I'd put it in because it, it would have been fun whether people liked it or hated it it would have been fun
1: well I mean there's definitely an audience for that I mean there's like this I think there used to be a website called what if sports yeah and there's like someone's like done the a book you know the greatest what ifs in sports history. I'm a Minnesota Vikings fan, so my whole life is what ifs, yeah. right? So <laughs> I was.
2: I I gave up after four Super Bowl losses. Oh,
1: <laughs> wow! After
2: that's... the the first one was hard enough, but the three that came after that were brutal. <laughs> but you know what? I think it. Someone has asked me this: Is what do you think would have changed if the Leafs had won? Uh, I think that's a great question. Would they have won the Cup? Um, How would that have impacted Stavro's ownership? How would that have impacted whether that team stayed together? How would that have impacted Gretzky? How would that have impacted a lot of things? It's like the Leafs could have signed Bobby Orr in 1964 or 5, whatever it was, and didn't. How would that have impacted the thing? I don't know. It's a great question, though.
0: It really is one of the greatest what-ifs, and I think a lot of people – have envisioned Dave Dave Ellett going the other way a lot of fans out there imagine what could have been Mm. Damian thanks for giving us so much of your time and congratulations on the book
2: well thanks guys I appreciate you uh, going over with me again I'm even more excited about it now
0: (laughs) (laughs) thank you